33 AD. If you're just joining us, we're going through a series called The Week That Changed the World. We're looking at eight days of Jesus' life from Sunday, March 29th uh, through <clears throat> April, I guess that would be 5th, April 5th, 33 AD. And if you're just joining us, here's where we've been on Sunday, March 29th, 33 A.D. We can be pretty confident about those dates due to historical records that we looked at the triumphal entry. And our, our call to us to live out that day was worship the Lord. As people were laying down their palm branches, we are to lay down our lives and worship the Lord. Monday, March 30th, that was the temple cleansing. Jesus came in and he cleaned the temple. He overturned, he, it was the, he over, upset the pigeon cart, so to speak. And it was a call for them and us to repent from sin. So that would be Monday, March 30th. And then Tuesday, March 31st, was the teaching of Jesus. And we saw last week there was a lot going on uh, in that, on that day that he was teaching from early morning, even before he got into the temple, to late at night, even after he left, left the temple. And he was calling for his disciples to defend the faith, and he spoke uh, directly to the Pharisees and gave them the seven woes uh, that we looked at last week. And so today is, Mar- is Wednesday, April 1st. If you were in that last week, it would be April Fool's Day. It was the day that they were going to plot against Jesus. And so to begin this, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to watch a little video. Father, uh, this is your word. It's absolutely true. And in it contains the riches of life because we learn about you. I pray now as we watch this video and then look at what the uh, leaders were plotting against Jesus and what Jesus did in response, I pray that we would learn, we would be humbled, we would be confident, that we would walk away from here stronger in our faith, more gracious uh, to those around us, more thankful for the grace you give us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
<laughs> you laugh. I actually had to call somebody last year. I was like, is this true? Come on. It just sounded good, didn't it? It sounded really good, especially with the one dude with the beard. and He was talking really fast about science, and you're like, oh, wow, my computer's going to do this. But it was, a, it was a joke. It was on April Fool's Day last year. Uh, April Fool's Day, nobody really knows where it came from. Uh, it's alluded to in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Some say it has to do with uh, when Pope Gregory changed the calendar to what we see it as now. He moved it the new year from April 1st to, to January 1st. We don't really know, but the whole point is that's a day of practical jokes, and Google played a good one uh, on that day because just the way they presented it, it was to some degree, well, I won't say absolutely, but to some degree believable. But this is Wednesday, April 1st, 33 A.D., and we don't want to be a fool. We don't want to be fooled by two things, either unbelief or by wrong belief. And so today I want to present to you, I'm actually just going to read to you what Jesus taught this day so that we're not fooled. It's the gospel plain and simple because we can be fooled into believing uh, certain things and be off in wrong belief, or we can be fooled in believing nothing, that we can have unbelief. Uh, the world tells us that God is not sovereign. Jesus is just a good man. The Holy Spirit isn't real. The gospel really isn't good news, or it's relative. It's good news for you. Christians are silly for holding to this thing called the Bible. And so today, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see the leaders plotting against Jesus, and we're going to see the Lord's plotting, P-L-O-D-D, that He's carrying on a hard work. And you're going to see the emotion of Jesus today. Today is, in some accounts, if you're just reading through the Gospel of Mark, it's a day of silence. You don't see much going on, but it's actually a day of strategy. And not just strategy um, from the leader's position, but from God's position. Uh, what we do know where we ended last week is it said Jesus kept teaching daily in the temple. And we're going to see a teaching, a teaching that's often, if you see in your hand up there, it's often left out. It's John 12, 27 through 50. And many don't know where to place this in the chronology of Christ in the Passion Week because, quite frankly, it's a difficult passage, a very difficult passage. Uh, but that's never kept us from looking at the Scriptures. But before we get there, we are going to see the foolishness of man. It's predicted in Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2 uh, up there. I'll read it here, Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations rage against God's wisdom. They think that being a Christian uh, is somehow holding them back. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And unfortunately, there are many pastors who have just presented Jesus and Christianity as kind of this uh, group of people that don't do things versus coming to it with the freedom to do many things. And so even then, back at that time, the psalmist said the nations rage and they take counsel together. And you see that if you're following along on your handout. It's not going to be up on the screen. You see just seven verses that talk about 
the kings and the rulers, they came together. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They were wanting to gather him. They were gathering together to want to capture him and kill him. But verse 5 you see in Matthew there says, But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Mark says the same thing. Luke says it like this. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. They didn't want to do this at a certain time because they understood the people were following him and they were afraid for their own lives and for their own position. What they didn't really understand is they were just working out the grand plan of God. If you look at Acts 2, uh, 24 uh, through 28 there, 20, actually Acts 2, 22 through 24, it's up on the screen, Acts 2. This is what Luke records for us so we can understand just what was going on in the mind of God there. Acts 2, uh, 22 says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus, this historical Jesus, not a figment of our imagination, not just a, a good man in fairy tale stories, this Jesus delivered up, capture this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You killed, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it because he was the perfect sacrifice. If that's not enough, Luke goes on to say in Acts 20, or excuse me, Acts 4 verses 23 through 28, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported. And did I give you, I just gave you 20 through to 24. I'll read the whole thing though. And they heard it. So Paul and Barnabas are released. And they heard it and they lifted their voices to God saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit, notice they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Verse 27, For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, they're praying to God, they're saying to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And so we can come up with two ways of saying what was happening with the leaders. Number one, you could say it like this, the plots of men work out the predestined plan of God. Or you could say, God uses the foolishness of the world as a foil in his story of salvation, a foil being something set there to uh, set your eyes on the main character. And you see that's exactly what was going on this day. April 1st, 33 A.D., when I first read that in the chronology of that week, I just had to laugh to myself. Wow, 
Who would have thunk it? Thunk is not a word. I just threw that out there. And I debated really all week. I actually had two sermons for today, and I was going to do both, but I realized that there are things people have to do, and we didn't want to be here for two full hours. Um, And so I chose to go with what Jesus spoke during that week. I was going to go down the road of foolishness and show you 1 Corinthians, but we'll wait until we do that letter. So what was Jesus doing during this, this time? What was Jesus up to? Well, if you flip over that handout, you should see on the back side, you'll see what Jesus was doing. He was doing what he was always doing, what Luke said he was doing. He was teaching daily in the temple, and then he would leave and go home. He would work hard during the day, and he would go home at night. And what you're going to see is Jesus staying the course, literally plodding along with a heavy heart, a prophetic voice, and a cry for people to repent. The outline looks something like this. You're going to see the suffering servant, that Jesus Christ had to die. And you're going to see the sovereign God. There are some people who will not believe in Jesus. And finally, you're going to see the simple response, that those who believe in Jesus have eternal life with him. And so on the back of that handout, you can follow along. John 12, starting in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. Life for Jesus was not just miracles and parables. Here is a man who felt deeply. Why did he feel deeply? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. All throughout the Gospel of John, you get my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now his hour has come. Jesus was born to die. Jesus' life had a purpose. It had been foreshadowed throughout all the Gospel of John. John said it like this in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said of himself, Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. So much so that people are like, How's he going to do that? I mean, the temple took 42 years to build. And John gives us a little side note. He was speaking of the temple of himself. But what you noticed here in this first verse is that he had feelings. He had deep feelings. And yet he submitted his feelings to stay focused to his task. You could say he was governed by God's glory. Notice the next verse. Father, glorify your name. And then God responded. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God affirmed Jesus. He had done what God had asked him to do. Three times we see God speak from heaven to earth in the life of Jesus Christ. We see it at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We see it at the transfiguration when Peter was jabbing and just gabbing a whole bunch about, hey, we'll build temples for you. The voice came from heaven and it said the same thing as his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he added something for Peter's sake and for ours. Listen to him. Because literally it says, answering, Peter said. Nobody asked a question. Peter just was talking. Right? Ready, fire, aim. Identify with that guy. And then here, I have glorified it. Your life, my son, has been a glory to me. I have glorified it. Notice who was glorifying himself through Jesus. God gets all the glory because Jesus lived a holy life. And he said, I will glorify it again, talking of that time to come 
in just five short days where his son would die and rise again. Just a little side note here, a little sermon within a sermon. We could do so, parents, especially daddies, especially fathers. I learned this from Robert Lewis in Authentic Manhood. As the Lord, as God the Father Almighty gave affirmation to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so we parents and especially daddies need to give affirmation to our kids. At crucial times in their lives, all the time we need to affirm them in what they do right. We don't just affirm them just to be firming, but what they do right and what they do well. What they do according to the scriptures and what they're good at. I had to this morning, oh, it's just, it, was a, it was a teaching moment. My son is not here today because he keeps like this wet cough into his arm. <coughs> but I want to go to church. <coughs> I'll do this. <coughs> and then he, then he makes this legal case, and I need to confirm this with, with Chris. He, I did it last week. As, I mean, he's a... Uh, Father, don't you understand that I coughed last week and this week has gone on? And he's just, and I looked at him and I got down on a knee right before I left and I said, Young man, I'm proud of you because you want to go to church. I'm proud of you, buddy. I didn't get choked up, but I looked at him and I said, I said, That is good. I said, But we don't want to spread that to everybody. You and Lawson together. The coughing brothers. But I affirmed him. I saw and praised the Lord. To him be the glory. An opportunity to affirm that's a good desire in your life, young man. And that's what we need to do. God gets the glory. His name is glorified because of the obedience of his son. But look what happens when the people hear this voice from heaven. 29, the crowd stood there and heard it and said it was that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answers, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world be cast out, and I am lifted up from the earth, and I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so that is what that means, to draw all people to himself. There's two things going on here. Who is this ruler of the world? Well, if we look at Matthew 4, 8 and 9, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, Satan said to Jesus, All these things I will give to you. So in some sense, Satan is the ruler of this world. And if you will fall down and worship me, and Jesus, or Paul said in Ephesians 2, I don't know if it's up there. Is Ephesians 2 there? Yes. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is the ruler of the world. And so Jesus says, judgment has come. This ruler of the world will be cast out. And he said he will draw all people to himself. By saying this, he doesn't mean that it's in universalism. He doesn't mean that he's going to draw everybody to himself and save them all one day. He was talking about not only, as it says there in John, the death that he would die, but how salvation would come to the world. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
You want to be you want to go to heaven, you must go through Jesus. Thank you. You want to go to Denver? There are several ways to get there. You can drive there, and there are several ways to drive there. You could fly there. And maybe one day in the next hundred years, you can take a train there. I don't know. But if you want to go to heaven, there is only one way to get there. Through Jesus Christ. And so the crowd hears him and they said, they, they, they understood that he meant that he was going to die. Notice it says there in John, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. They did understand that because their response, they said, so the crowd answered him, hey, 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 hey. I just added that, that's not in the text. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How are, how are you going to die and be the, the Messiah? How, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up to draw all people to you? This whole idea of lifting up that you're going to die. How, how can you understand? How can you say that? Who, who is the Son of Man? Now let me give you some background here so you understand why they were saying that, and then we'll see what Jesus said because his answer is elusive to say uh, the best there. 2 Samuel 7. 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up from your offspring after you, God speaking to David, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They thought of their Messiah as living forever. Psalm 61, 6 and 7, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. And so you have the history, you have the poetry, and you now have prophecy. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came from the Ancient of Days who was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. How can you say, Jesus, you've got this claim to be Messiah, but you now say you have to die? We don't understand that. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. We can't just wrap our heads around that. And so Jesus says in verse 35 of John 12, The light is among you for a little while longer. Wow, and did he just mean a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And so he commanded and called them to follow him. He doesn't give them a direct answer. He calls them to follow him. And when he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so he's just affirming, you can see up here what John wrote about in John 1, 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who would receive him, who believed in his name, to receive means to believe. Just remember that little saying in the book of John. When you see receive, it means believe. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Key phrase, who were born not of blood, 
It's not your heritage, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not what you do, nor of the will of man. It's not what somebody bestows on you, but of God. You and I are born of God. There are no Christian family lines. Everybody comes to God through Jesus individually. Yes, it is great to have a heritage, a Christian heritage. Don't hear me say that. Don't walk away and say, the pastor said, no. The point is, when it comes to your salvation, it has nothing to do, uh, it won't say nothing, that's a hyperbole. Luke Philip Rumley will not become a Christian because he is the son of Judson Paul Rumley. He had to put his own faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not because he was better than somebody else. And he was smarter. And it's not because I conferred upon him. Oh, come here, my son. Good job for you wanting to go to church. You're now saved from eternal damnation. That's not how it happens. But of God. And here's where we get into the difficult portion of the text. Verse 37, the sovereignty of God. Some people will not believe in Jesus. And though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Miracles were given so that people would believe, but that never meant he had, couldn't go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What is that word? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to has... To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Isaiah 53.1. Lord, who has believed in what he heard from us? Only some will believe. But to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To everyone. Therefore, this is a difficult sentence. Therefore, they could not believe. This is proof that he didn't draw all men to himself in that way. More on that in a minute. For Isaiah said again, this is the next difficult sentence. He, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Who is the he? Who is the he? You should see that on the back of your handout. Just Therefore they could not believe. Why? For Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Now, some people would start to do exegetical gymnastics right now. He has blinded their eyes? Well, the he obviously couldn't be God. Why not? Because... It is God. If you go back to Isaiah 6, it is the Lord talking to Isaiah and it's talking about their blinded eyes and it says here, He, Isaiah, you're to go to a nation that's not going to believe me. He is, is God. And you, you say, is that normal? Does God do that? I mean, does He harden people's hearts? Well, if we go back and we read the book of Exodus, just got through reading that first section of Exodus, such a great story, powerful story. Nineteen times this idea of hard, hearted, the hardening of the heart comes up. Nineteen times. Three times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five times it's his heart was hardened or it remained hardened neutral. Eleven times it says God hardened his heart. 
Paul quotes it in Romans 9. I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. God hardened his heart in Exodus. Does that mean that God works against Satan's blinding and our own personal rebellion? I don't think so. I think God is sovereign. I think Satan has blinded the eyes of some. 2 Corinthians 4. You see it here in the Gospel of John. And I think people's own personal rebellion. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And so we could look at a few more verses just to show that, that when you and I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because we're smarter than anyone else. It's not because we had an inside track and somebody else didn't. It's because of the mercy of God. When we sing Mercy Tree, and, and I love that last song, I hope we get to sing it for Easter Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, has won my affections. That's huge. Has won my affections and bound my soul fast. Why do the nations rage? Why do the leaders take counsel together and say, curse their bonds away from us? Oh, the Lord has in some sense, bound me to himself. He has won my affection. Because my affections were in other places and by his mercy alone. John 6.44 says it like this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's the other use of a draw. There's this general drawing. Nobody comes to God except through Jesus Christ. And there's this specific drawing that he draws certain people to himself and he will raise them on that day. In Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it did not say, and they believed and then they were appointed to eternal life. The phraseology is crucial here. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It means something different if you set it up a different way. Acts 16, 14. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller, seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So she was, seek, she was a God seeker or God worshiper but didn't understand the gospel. And then the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I assure you, I stand behind this pulpit today not because I figured it out. I stand here today proclaiming the gospel as a saved man because God opened my heart. He hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you are only restricted in your affections. More on that in a minute. And I'll end with this. This is the clearest one out there in the scripture. It's a tough one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, it was figured out. Don't ask me how. I'm not infinite. I don't understand it. But that's what it says. 
Ephesians 1, 2, it should be the next one up there. Ephesians 3 and 4, even as he chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Isaiah, if we go back to our handout now, Isaiah said these things because he had saw the, his glory and spoke of him. Now, if you're ever in a conversation with a liberal scholar who says, Aha! You see, you Christians cannot trust this Bible. Isaiah was not just written by Isaiah. It was written by Deutero-Isaiah. There are more than one authors of Isaiah. There's no way that he could have ever, 800 years before it happened, predicted in Isaiah 53 the death of Jesus so clearly. There's just no way it could happen because I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe God can do those things. I just believe in good uh, fact, and there's no way that could have happened. And you would say, oh, but John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things. Jesus used those words. He was saying that Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 were written by the same author. Just a little side note. But the key point to all this is Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Peter helps us with this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, and that's what it is, grace, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or, the, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was in indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, those prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that we now have that now have been announced through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. There's so much there we could do a whole series on those three verses. But the idea is Isaiah saw the glories, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, and he spoke of those things. Jesus picks up on those and he talks about this thing called election. He hardened their hearts. They couldn't believe. Just a couple of questions to get us thinking. Because election is not, we always narrow it down to this idea, it's, a salvific, it, it, it's, a, it's an issue, and some people say, well, it's not a salvific issue, don't even go there, don't talk about it. You know, I mean, I know it's in the Bible, but let's just not talk about that part of the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And I will argue it's not just a salvific issue. It is, it is the core, not if the core. The core is God's holiness. But outside of God's holiness, it is a very key issue into the sovereignty of God in all of life. couple questions. Did God, I just, just nod with me. You don't have to yell. We're taping this. Did God have to create the world? Okay, you can talk. That's good. It's okay. It's free. You're free. Bound to Jesus, free to do talk during my sermon. That's good. No. Okay, in general, why did he do it? He elected to do it. Did God have to save Adam and Eve? No. If not, why did in, in general, he elected to do it. Did God have to choose Abram? I mean, why not Mortimer from Ur? Why not Mortimer from Ur? It's a good question. Why not Mortimer? Why Abram? Because he chose to. Did God have to choose Israel? He's really clear with them on this one. Really clear. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. He tells us why. Because we're His treasured people. Out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, 
Deuteronomy 7, 7. Listen to this one. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to his fathers. He could have chosen the Philistines, but he didn't. He chose Israel. Now let's get real personal. Did God have to create me? No. Did God have to save me? Did I merit something in my life from age 1 to 14 that the creator of the universe would say, boy, if I don't have him on the team... And here's the biggest one. He is an eternal trinity, perfect in beauty and holiness. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't have to prove anything. He really didn't have to do anything. And often this gets misunderstood and thus misrepresented. Here are the two big ones. It's not fair. Doesn't seem fair. I guess I would just ask one more question. Fair according to who? And then I'm not truly free. Is God a, I mean, am I a robot? When you're talking about election, you have to talk about this thing called freedom. I want to propose to you, based on, 2 Corinthians 6, 12, I believe, that you are, you are not and never have been truly free. Paul says you are restricted not by us, but by your own affections. My biblical case there would be there's nobody with absolute true freedom. We are free to follow what we know and what we love. Example. What's the best place and kind of ice cream in the world? Baskin-Robbins, 31 flavors. Some of us, I know at least two of us, have been to Buttercups in Oxnard, California. Have you ever been to Buttercups? Raise your hand. Nobody. Two of us have been to Buttercups. Probably the greatest place for ice cream Ever. But then some of you, and especially, and now that's the place, the type, coconut, right? Is there any other? Rocky Road? Who's a Rocky Road? Why do you want to eat rocks? Coconut ice cream. By Boulder, I, I mean, I am so glad I'm in Colorado now. You can go and pay way too much money for way too little of organic coconut, island coconut ice cream at City Market. Try it. You'll never eat anything else. You probably won't want to eat ever again. But some of you are saying, oh, but you've not been to your place or you've not been to Hawaii where they make really good coconut. (laughs) See what you're doing in your mind. You're already saying, wow, you haven't been. Right, because I don't know every ice cream store in the world and I haven't tasted every ice cream. I'm restricted by what I know and what I love. So when it comes to this idea of fairness, according to who? 
Um, Isaiah says it like this, and I think we, we have it up there. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I, I don't know everything, and I am restricted in what I love. And unless the Lord Jesus Christ, really, unless by the power of the Holy Spirit, had opened up my heart to see the truth of the gospel, to respond to it, to not only grant me the knowledge but the repentance, 2 Timothy 2.6, that they may uh, come to their senses and repent. God may grant them that they come to their senses and repent. Unless the Lord had not done that for me, I assure you I would have been down in Dallas and Deep Ellum and probably dead by now from pursuing a life of debauchery. And you say, well, why are you... Why are you spending so much time on this? Is because it it should humble us. I asked my wife. I, I, I on these big issues, I bat around with her because she's she can be much more clear on these things, and she's just clear on. It. I say, well, what what do you say if if you were to, somebody were to talk to you about election? And my daughter's listening to this, and she chimes in because that's his plan. Thank you, sweetie. You see, out of the mouths of babes and infants, Psalm eight. And my wife said, well, number one, it, it says it in the Bible. And she said, number two, I guess the key thing is, why did he save me? It's a humbling, I thought. Why did he save me? Because if you start after that, if your answer to that question is your resume, I would, I would say you don't understand grace. Now, let's go back to John here. We're almost through John 12. Let me just read 40, verses 40 and 42, because John, John 41 is kind of a, a parenthetical statement. Isaiah said these things, saw the glory. Therefore, they could not believe him. He blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and he would heal him. If you go to 42, nevertheless... Even of the authorities, many of the authorities believed in him. So you're saying God's absolutely sovereign, but man is absolutely responsible. I am not saying it. That's what the Bible says. Nevertheless, even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, are these true believers? I mean... They, they believed in him but wouldn't confess him. And I think John 19, whoo, I'm glad that's in there. John 19, 38 and 39. Listen to these two fellows that you will see in heaven. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for the fear of Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body and check this guy out. You remember him? Nicodemus also who was a Pharisee earlier, who had come to Jesus by night, double entendre there. He came by night because he probably really at that time didn't believe in Jesus, nor did he want to be seen talking to this guy, Jesus, for he was a Pharisee. 
And he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he's a strong chap. Or he had a donkey or something helping. I don't know. I just, I, that's, that's me reading into the text. Do you want to do that? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. What changed for them? The man who said they were going to die for his sins went and did what he did, and they said, that's fine. I will take his body down from the cross. I will bring the burial clothes. The death of Jesus Christ strengthened their faith, and in faith they went and put him in a tomb, believing that he would rise from the dead. Which leads to the final section, the simple response. Those who believe in Jesus will be saved from sin. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, God. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me, God the Father. I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We are still commanded to believe in Jesus in light of the sovereignty of God. You say, can you just show me one more place where where the sovereignty of God meets the responsibility of man in a nice section? I could show you from Philippians. I could show you all over the Bible. But Matthew 11 is one of my favorites. Matthew 11, starting in verse 25 says this, I think it should be up there, Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things had been handed over to me, Jesus, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Huh. And then right after that, what does He say? Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. If you're here today and you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and you're carrying a burden and you're wondering about the future and you're wondering how you're going to make it in life, I cannot, will not promise you that if you come to Christ, everything will be great. You'll be driving a new car, the bank account will be full, and you'll never get sick again. I can't promise you that. But what I can promise you is this. Come to Jesus if you're weary and you're heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. He will give you rest for your soul. His soul was troubled so your soul could have peace. Take my yoke upon you. See, life with Jesus isn't just uh, fun and games. It is work. And learn from him. He's a great teacher, for he's gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. It's still a yoke. And his burden is light. And he said that because these Pharisees, to bring it full circle, who were plotting against him, were weighing the people down with rule after rule after rule. And in 47, if anyone hears my words and he does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to, to judge the world, but to save the world. The first time Jesus came, he came to save the world. But he is coming again. And Revelation 19.11 says, he will judge the world. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, while a horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, look at that, he judges and he makes war. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge, 
the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. He's coming back, and those who reject him will face him. And like I said last week, that, that facing him, you can bow, and it can be a loving, joyful bow before the king, or it, or it cannot. It's one of the two. There's no third option. And so we're responsible for our choices. Last two verses, for I have not spoken on my own authority. This is beautiful. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. That's the second person of the Trinity. Divine is the Father, divine is the Holy Spirit, who just said, I only do what my daddy tells me to. He obeys the Father perfectly. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. May I give you one of the greatest verses? Those two are great. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, When all things are subjected to Him, Jesus, then the Son Himself will be subjected to Him, God the Father, who put all things into subjection under Him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. Those of you in here who are married and are called to follow in sweet submission to your husbands, number one husbands, make sure you're doing it well, but ladies who are wives of husbands, your model is Jesus. Your model is not any woman in the world. Your model for following is Jesus because he did it perfectly. And what amazes me by that verse is even in the end, he will then give it right back to God. Your model is Jesus. That's the greatest defense for the complementarian position out there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equal. All equal. No less God over here being the Holy Spirit. Never sent once by, but he's, he's absolutely God. And God the Son, the Savior of the world, the one, he is always, he said it right there in John 12, 49 and 50, he's always submissive. I only do what I was told to say and speak. It's not a blind submission. It's a joyful submission. It's not a submission without choice and thought, but it's a submission always living for the greater glory of God. And so thus he ends what I think uh, will be his last uh, long teaching of the week because, as you will see next week, we go into a private teaching with his disciples and then he goes into his trials. But he leaves the people with no um, ambiguity. It's the gospel, plain and simple. Jesus taught that he had to come and die for their sin. That's the first thing. Second thing up there, it's the next slide, is that some would not believe in him. He was just honest about that. He wasn't doing gymnastics. He was just honest. And then the third, he said, those who believe will have eternal life. It's the gospel, plain and simple. You and I are sinners and need a Savior. His name is Jesus. We'll go out and share that message, and some will respond and some won't. And that's okay. It crushes our souls when they don't. And we carry on. And so what do we do with this? I think we do what Jesus did. We follow Christ. Uh, Jesus had real emotions, but they did not lead him. I would encourage you to feel deeply and obey instantly. By the grace of God and for his glory, Jesus is your model for how to handle your emotions. Two, Jesus was rejected. 
but he never gave up. By God's grace and for God's glory, know it's coming. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just let's make sure it doesn't come within the church. We ought to build each other up so that when we go out, we know we're going to face persecution. We are. And, it, and I'll just say this, I'm not a prophet. I wasn't there when Isaiah saw the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think it's going to get worse. In the day and age in which we live, it's just got, I've, I've got to say it to you because you need to hear it. It's going to get worse. And I could go to jail someday for taking a stand for Christian ethics. I just, you need to know that. I could go to jail. And that's okay. And we, she usually sits right there, we have a plan. Right? You'll take care of the kids. You take care of her. Right? All three of you. There's the plan. (laughs) Okay? But the point is, I'm not going to give up. And you shouldn't either. And finally, Jesus spoke with authority and he lived under authority. He was bold, but it was always contained in God's glory. And we should do the same. We should walk in the light, speaking the truth of Christ's necessary death, humbled, humbled by God's softening of our hearts and believing there's this big plan that he's coming back. He's coming back. Father, tough text that you give us. Your son taught it the week that he was heading to the cross. He never shied away from the truth, and so we shall not. And Lord, your son felt, God, your son felt deeply. He was a passionate man. May we be passionate like him. Father, we come to you now clinging to the truth asking for you to pour out your mercies on our friends and family and co-workers, our neighbors, our acquaintances. God, we cannot live this life without you. Help us to be submissive to your word, confident in the truth that it contains, and joyful as we live it out. I pray these things in your Son's name and ask for you to send your Holy Spirit so that we may fulfill what you command and to fulfill it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Those men who are helping with communion would come forward.